Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Pat Hyben with Keller Williams Realty in Columbia, Maryland. Last year, he closed 209 transactions with a total sales volume of $63 million. His average sales price was $303,000, of which 24% were buyers and 76% were sellers. He operates a team with 14 members, three SOI agents, three lead call agents, six staff members, and two managers. Pat Hyben is the team leader of the Pat Hyben Real Estate Group. He has been an agent for 24 years and works the central Maryland market between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Pat is a billion-dollar agent. He has sold over 5,000 homes worth over $1 billion in his career. In his best year, 2005, Pat sold 508 homes worth $208 million, grossed $5.4 million in commission, and managed 54 team members. This was no fluke. Pat sold over 500 homes a year for three years in a row. In this interview, we will focus on three major topics. Pat's current production, Pat's hyper-volume years, and Pat's new book titled Six Steps to Seven Figures, a Real Estate Professional's Guide to Building Wealth and Creating Your Own Destiny. Pat is a chameleon. Over the years, he's had to adapt to changing markets. For most of his career, Pat has been a traditional agent. He mastered traditional marketing and team dynamics to build a hyperactive real estate practice. Then the recession hit and traditional methods stopped working. Pat had to choose between downsizing or financial ruin. Pat describes the gut-wrenching decision to let go of 22 of his team members in one year, five in one day. During the darkest days, Pat saw opportunity in REO. He had the courage to stop doing everything that made him successful and switch to focusing solely on two things, REO and SOI. It paid off. Listen closely as this industry icon lays out his success formula in six steps to seven figures. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Pat. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I actually went to college. I got into real estate at 21 years old. I'm an October baby. So I was, you know, always young in my classes. I was 17, graduating high school, and 21, graduating college. 
So in November of 1987, uh, I got my real estate license. And the funny thing is now we're talking, and I am now officially in my 25th year of selling houses. I'm 46 years old. Why did you choose real estate? You know, that's another funny question, too. I mean, I, I really never thought to myself, oh, I love looking at fireplaces and I love kitchen designs. I, I You know, to be completely candid with you, I don't, you know, I can walk to a house and not notice anything, whereas so many other people out there have attention to detail. I think that really what put me there was just fate. I was substitute teaching. I applied for several companies. I didn't knock it out of the ballpark in college. I got a 2.6 GPA. My degree was in sociology. only reason I, I chose sociology was because two years in, I was so clueless as to what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, I was passing, but I had just taken electives for two years. And my counselor called me in for a meeting, and he said, Pat, you, you've never claimed a major. And I said, yeah, I know. I'm thinking about that. <laughs> and he says, you've got to claim a major next semester. So I said, well, I, I don't want to go on the five-year plan. I need to get out of here in four years. He said, well, sociology is only 10 classes and history is 12. And I said, I'll go with Soch. So we went with Soch at the 10 classes, graduated on time. And so I interviewed a bunch of different Xerox and AT&T and all the big corporations. Nobody would, would hire me. I did substitute teach and was making like $50 a day. And, you know, I met a guy who sold new homes. And he portrayed himself as if he was making lots of money. Whether it was or not, I have no idea. But I just remember meeting this random guy who sold new homes. I was like, man, I need to get into new homes. So I started interviewing to all these new home builders. And, of course, I'm 21 years old, never sold anything. So, of course, they didn't hire me either. But that thought process of me wanting to sell new homes led to the next thing, which is I think I'll get my real estate license. So I went and signed up for the real estate license and got my license. And then, of course, that didn't really lead anywhere to in the new home road. They still didn't want to hire me. So I started interviewing at real estate companies. And in the 80s, real estate companies were very particular. I mean, it's a completely different world in the 80s. The real estate hiring process in the 80s was like the stockbroker's business. Now, like if you or I, Mike, if you or I walked into Merrill Lynch today and tried to get a job as a broker, we would get turned down. You know what I mean? I mean, that they hire, uh, you have to have a book of business from a, a smaller brokerage and be successful, or you have to have graduated Yale with a 4.0, you know what I mean, in finance. Uh, you just can't walk in, the average Joe just can't walk in and get a job. That's how real estate brokerages were. If you were a new agent, if you were a part-time agent, they would not hire you. It's a completely different world now, but I went to four or five different large companies, and they turned me down. I ended up getting a job at a company called Grempler Realty, which specialized in uh, part-time agents. And I was considered part-time because I substitute taught. So that's how I started. And then I ended up selling a couple of houses. My first year, I sold 10 houses. I made $13,200. I sold three mobile homes six condos, and one single-family house. 
why did you continue on if it was so difficult that first year? Well, the reality of it was it really wasn't that difficult. I mean, it's 13-2, you know, again, I'm young. I lived in a house. My rent was 200 a month. I had two other roommates, two other guys that, you know, worked in a restaurant or something. And I got by with 13-2. It wasn't that bad for me. My next year, I made 24. And then my big change happened my third year. Two years into the business, I took uh, Floyd Wickman's Sweat Hogs. After taking Floyd Wickman's Sweat Hogs, I went from making 24000 to 83000 So I tripled it. I know your next question is, well, what happened? What changed? Well, the, what changed was I became proactive. I learned two things. I learned a ton of things from Floyd, but the two main things I learned were, number one, listings are the name of the game. Forget about all that buyers. They're easy to get, but you can't get rich with buyers. And number two, you need to pick up the phone and be proactive. You know, you need to produce. You need to go out and get it. It's not going to just come to you through floor duty. And the rest is history. Now, 22 years later after that, every year I went up. You know, there were years, obviously, uh, after the boom and we finally went down. I used to be able to say, every year I've made a dollar more than the year prior. But, you know, that, that whole speech went out the window a couple of years ago. But, uh, but nonetheless, you know, from there, it was once I understood that you really want to make it big in real estate, you needed to be a listing agent and you needed to go out assertively and get business rather than waiting for it to come to you. Once I understood those two principles, it was all uphill from there. Never looked back. Last year, how many homes did you close? Last year, we sold 209 homes. What has been your best year? How many homes have you sold your best year in this business? Best year we sold, and I believe it was 2005, we sold 508 homes, and that was $208 million in volume. Wow. Yep. Wow, 508 homes, $208 million in volume. My gosh, how much in commission? We did 5.4 that year. That's phenomenal. Yeah, that was fun. Did I understand correctly that you were selling homes at that level for a couple of years in a row? Yeah. We did 501, 504, and 508, I believe. Over your career, how many homes do you think you've sold? Over 5,000 homes. Wow. Yep. One house at a time, no commercial. I do REO now, but I didn't do REO till 2008. In the past, I've always been a traditional agent. And more recently, we've gotten into the REOs because we saw the high numbers there and the, and the ease of what we could do with them. And, and because of the, the market crashing the way it did, we also wanted to spend less money. And, you know, REOs are certainly a way to minimize your costs because of the advertising that's required compared to a traditional listing. Over your career, am I understanding correctly that you are a billion-dollar agent? Yeah, oh yeah, it adds up to a billion, you know, one point something, I don't know, probably 1.2 now or something, but yeah, billion dollars in volume at least. That's phenomenal. That's some rare air. Let's talk about your current market. Where is Columbia, Maryland? Columbia, Maryland is a suburb of Baltimore, and it also can be considered a suburb of Washington, D.C. So we rest about 
45 minutes north of D.C. and about 20 minutes south of Baltimore City. So we're closer to Baltimore City. Baltimore City is the city that, you know, my wife and I, we had our 19th anniversary. We went a couple days ago. We went down to Baltimore City and had dinner. That's our main city. D.C., actually, tomorrow night, we're going to go to D.C. for a company I own has its party, and it's in D.C. So, you know, we go to both cities, but we're more apt to go to Baltimore because we're because it's in and out. We can get there in 20 minutes. And so that's where we are. We sell a lot of houses. The spouses, one works in D.C. or Northern Virginia, and the other works in Baltimore City. And it works out great. It's a great little spot right in the middle. Describe your current real estate market. You know, actually, our market from our traditional sales-wise, meaning like the county that I live in, Howard County, Maryland, has actually hit equilibrium this month. And what I mean by equilibrium is six months, six months of inventory, meaning if, if no more houses were put on the market at all, it would take six months before we would get to no houses for sale. So if there's, there's 60 houses for sale and 10 are selling a month, in six months we'd hit zero. So, and economists say that any market that has six months of inventory has hit equilibrium, which just means it's perfect. It's, it's good for buyers, it's good for sellers. It's not great for either, but it's not bad for either. It's fair for both. Right, it's not a bad time to buy. It's not a bad time to sell. Everybody's in 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 a state of mind that is uh, accepting of the market. Nobody's thrown for a loop. Nobody feels like they're getting gypped. And uh, it's a good place to be. I don't know how long that will last. I know from being in the REO business that you know there's a lot of inventory that's going to hit the hit the streets 2012 from the banks. Only time will tell. And certainly we've been singing that song for a while, too, actually. More, more than a year and a half we've been singing, oh, yeah, the inventory's coming down the pike. There's, coming, there's all these foreclosed homes that haven't hit the market. But, but who knows what will happen, you know? Only God knows, so we'll, we'll just wait and see. What's your average days on the market? Average days on the market, I think, now is 98 days. Are you seeing more retail sales or REO and short sales in your market? In our market, we are seeing more retail. By more, I mean there's probably 35% REOs and shorts and then 65% retail. They're definitely there and they're definitely a thorn in many people's size as far as uh, their values and, and things like that, but not like they don't exist. They do exist. That's a significant portion of the market. And we're lucky, though, because... A large portion of our buyer market now is investors. And their investor market is huge. Where, where even two and a half years ago, it was non-existent. You know, maybe three three years ago, there was a time, you know, where nobody would buy an investment property, and now there's tons. And now they're just the investors are out, and it's really helped our market actually. You know, if you took away investors, it, it would it would hurt. So, again, it's equilibrium. There's some short sales, there's some foreclosures, but there's also fish that will eat that. Are the investors coming out because they're looking for appreciation or can they cash flow now? The cash flow is getting better. It's not uh, ideal. Like if you actually, uh, you know, did an economic study and said, okay, I got a million dollars and, you know, where am I going to get the best cash flow in the United States? Maryland would not uh, be in the top 10. 
okay? There's other areas that you could put that million dollars to cash flow better. I'm assuming that whatever you bought, you would be getting at market value, right? I mean, deals are deals. If you find a deal in Maryland, yes, you might be able to make a cash flow. But on, on a whole, on market values, no. The cash flow is not as significant as, say, personally, I would want it to be today. But where the money lies today is in the flipping because what you have is homes that are unfinanceable. So you have a a home that's been foreclosed on that sat empty. Now, the average time from a home being in default till a home people actually being kicked out of the house and the house actually being put up for sale for a realtor is getting close to 800 days in our state. A lot of bureaucracy. So during that 800 days, what do you think happens to houses? They fall apart, right? A house is empty for 800 days or, or even half of that, even at 200 days, right? I mean, it just gets beat up and just by wear and tear, you know, rain gets into the through the windows and, you know, things get stolen. Big problem with air conditioning. Copper pipes are huge. You know, people just steal people's gutters and and pipes and air conditioning units. And, and it's just lots of stuff can happen to a vacant house. So anyways, to make a long story short, what I'm getting at is these houses become unfinanceable. Young couple wants to buy a house. Number one, they probably don't want to buy it because, you know, it's all beat up. But number two, they couldn't get a loan on it. You know, you just can't get a loan today on that house. So what happens is that price becomes suppressed because one-tenth of the buyers are actually looking at that house as would be a house that's all fixed up that they can get a loan on. The only people looking at said house that's been empty for 800 days are investors who can pay cash. In that market is maybe 10% of the regular market of first-time home buyers, second-time home buyers, third-time home buyers, whatever. So those prices get suppressed significantly enough that you could go in, buy it for cash, put 20 or 30 or 40 thousand dollars into fixing it up. I mean, really making it the Taj Mahal, making it like the best house in the neighborhood, and then a first-time buyer would love a house like that. A turnkey operation, it feels like you're moving in to a hotel room at the Four Seasons, right? You know, all the pedestal sinks that are marble and everything, you know, just really nice house. Um, so that market exists. And the delta between the foreclosed house that's been sitting empty for so long, plus the repairs that you've done, the delta between that number and what a first-time buyer will pay is significant, a significant profit. So that market exists. We have a lot of flipping going on in certain areas. So I'm answering your question about investing. That's where all the investors are coming from. Most of them are flipping. Uh, the ones that are, are renting, uh, we have one investor that bought like 28 houses last year. He does them all. He rents them all to Section 8. The government will pay above market rent. If you rent Section 8, you can cash flow Usually, you can cash flow much better than through the newspaper. So the cash flow does exist in some pockets, especially if you're going Section 8 of government housing. 
How far has your market fallen from the top to the bottom? What percentage has it come off of those high prices? I don't know the percentage number. If we had a house that was, I don't know, I'm just going to take a round number, let's say half a million, it's probably worth 350 now. Uh, it was probably worth two. I think we went 2.5x, which means, you know, over a five-year period of that surge, if you had a house, and I'll just use round numbers, you had a house worth 100, it was then worth 250 by the end of the day. So it was worth, it doubled, and then 50% more than that. So the 100 became a 250, and now it's a 175. So it's still good. If you bought in 2000, you'll still make 75 grand for living in it 12 years. And most of that 75 grand you made in the first couple years. So it sounds like your market fell maybe 30% or so on average? It just depends what years you're comparing, you know? But from its peak, it's dropped um, 250 to, I guess you're right, yeah, 35% price-wise. You currently have a niche or a specialization. You're focusing on REOs, also your sphere of influence. You mentioned earlier that you, you transitioned into that market. When did you transition into REO sales? 2008. So about three years now. Prior to the REOs, you were selling more as a traditional agent. Correct. Yeah. We were a huge branding agent. When we were doing 508 homes, we were doing television, radio. We were in 28 different publications every month. We spent money to make money. I mean, we bought our business, truly bought our business. And the numbers really worked. I mean, you could spend $1,000 and make five, and it worked great. But then over time, those numbers stopped working. You'd spend 1000 and you'd make 1000 Then it became you spend 1000 and you made 500 So what we decided to do, it was drastic, but we said, you know, there was a point where we tried, we did everything. Someone said, hey, you ought to do this. It makes money. You ought to do this. It makes money. We did everything. I mean, we could think of any, any sort of marketing idea that's out there. I've probably done it two or three times in my career. And so we went from doing everything to saying, let's just do two things. right? Instead of doing 20 things, let's just do two things. Past clients and sphere of influence, which is one thing, and then REOs. And of course, I wasn't in REOs, but I saw the money coming down the pike as far as REOs. And I saw it as a way to get good numbers, a lot of listings. I also saw it as a means to maintain our costs because our, our costs were astronomical. And with REOs, you know, there's not much cost other than a staff required. And so we diverted our efforts. And, and plus, it was something fun to do to, to kind of like build this business into REOs. So we did that. And that's where we're at today. Do you think that you're more profitable now that you're working at a smaller overall volume but a lower cost per transaction than you were when you were selling 500 homes a year? No, absolutely not. No way. You would think. I mean, I'd like to tell you the answer is yes, but not at all. I mean, here's the thing. What happened was, well, see, number one, in 2006, 2007, 2005, whatever, our average sale price was 450. 
Harvard's commission was like $11,000. We were netting, my net was like 28% or 25% or something. So depending on the year, somewhere between 25 and 30%. You know, we were making 3000 a pop, 3500 a pop. Now our commissions are about 3500 gross. One thing I didn't realize is with REOs, your average sale price just gets killed, just gets slaughtered. I mean, because we're selling stuff in Baltimore City for like $5,000. Not every listing we get, but we get some. I mean, we, we, it used to be we wouldn't take a listing under 100 grand. Now we're taking them under 10. <laughs> you know, we can't turn them down. You can't, you can't tell your, your service provider, your, you know, Bank of America or whoever, you can't tell them, hey, no, I won't do that, you know. You got to take it because they'll just find another agent and give them the, the 450 when they get it. So it has slaughtered average sale price. Now, from a percentage basis, you know, I mean, we're probably making still, we're probably making, and I've changed my operation now. So, you know, I have a partner that I'm giving half of the profits to, but if I don't count that and I just count company profits, you know, we might be making. In the 30s, percentage-wise, uh, net, but our our average commission is just so much lower. So no, I mean no way. I mean, I, back in the day, those days will never come again. I mean, those were fun. I mean, we we made there was a lot of money to be made back there in that, that five-year period. And plus, the houses sold so much faster. Commissions were higher. The overhead costs were high on the front end, but on the back end, you know, you would sell. You could you could list, sell, and settle a house in sixty days. You know, you could literally get paid. Some some of these we got paid forty five days after actually signing the paperwork to list it, because it sold in like two days and then settled in thirty. Now some of these REOs take like a year before they even settle because there's all kinds of title problems and issues, or buyers back out so much easier now. And I mean, I wouldn't trade it. I'm I'm glad we're in it. But I'm trying to answer your question logically. What I find, and I'm sure you find, as you interview most agents, unfortunately, most of them lie about what their nets are and what they actually make. They either lie or they don't know. You know, they're innocent in that they just don't know. But, but I'll answer your question direct. You know, we made much more money because our commissions were so much higher and we still had the same, you know, net numbers. And we do have staff, and it's all relative. So, like, if you ask a guy in Los Angeles what his net percentage is, it's irrelevant because his commissions are so high, you know? He could make a million dollars and only sell 10 houses. Thank you for answering my question. So it sounds to me like your net profit margin as a percentage of the gross has actually been about the same, around 25 to 30%. But because the prices have fallen, it's a dramatic difference in the absolute dollars, the total amount coming in and the total amount going out the bottom. Correct. Thank you for enlightening us on that and how you've coped with the changing market. There's a couple different ways that you've been generating business now that you've restructured and you're going into REO and uh, sphere of influence. How are you generating the REO business? Okay, so specifically, here's what I did. The first thing I did whenever I set any goals, and I talk about this in the book, this is step three of the six steps to seven figures, which we'll get into later, but step three in my book, Six Steps to Seven Figures, is mentors. 
and what I've done is I've had over 65 mentors throughout my 25-year career. And specifically what I do is when I set a goal, in 2008 I set a goal, okay, I'm going to get in the REO business. Right? One of the first things I do is find a mentor, someone who is doing it already and has been successful in the specific way that I want to be there. And by that I mean with the REOs, I wanted to find a mentor, not someone who's been in the business for 20 years, been in the REO business for 20 years, and was going to tell me, oh, it's all about relationships, right? I've known Joe Smith from Bank of America for 50 years or whatever. You know what I mean? I didn't want someone telling me, no, it's going to take you forever to get in. It's all locked up, blah, blah, blah. I wanted somebody who got in recently and was killing it. So I found an agent. Her name is Chantel Ray out of Virginia Beach. You should interview her too, as a matter of fact. She had done about 200 REO settlements the year prior and had only been doing REOs one year. So I called her up and I said, I was wondering if you would give me some advice, kind of coach me. I want to do the same thing. I want to go from zero to 200 in a year. And she said, Pat, I'm going to give you a three-step process and she says, I got a call on the other line. She said, if you do this three-step process and you do it well and you call me in two weeks, we'll talk again. And if you can prove to me that you've done that, then I would consider coaching you. I said, okay. And I'll tell you what she said. She said, step one, fill out application with bank. You know, just go to bankofamerica.com find on there where you fill out the application, vendors or agents or whatever. And what I did is I took it a step further. I hired a virtual assistant to fill out like 200 of them for me. After after doing two myself, I said, man, this is going to take forever. But you can do whatever you want. So she said, step one, fill out application with bank. Step two, call bank. Makes sense, right? Remember what I told you about the two things Floyd Wickman taught me? You got to go after it. Right? Call bank. And step three, repeat. And then she said, she said, write down this quote and put it on your desk. I said, okay. She said, you reap what you sow 100% of the time. I'll repeat that. She said, you reap what you sow 100% of the time. So I took that, I wrote it down, put it on my desk. And I just went to work, and I called her back in two weeks, and she said, good job, I'll, I'll coach you. So that is what I did to answer your question. How did you specifically get into the REOs? That is the overall process that I took to get into the REOs. Now, I will tell you that the first three accounts are harder to get in than the next 30. Because once you have three, you can start using them as references. Right? A lot of these companies want references. Right. They want to see that you've done it before. So I went after some small banks that were local here. If you got to figure that if you if you bank at let's say you know I bank at a, a bank called Howard Bank, right? Howard Bank has five branches, right? The majority of their employees are tellers. Right? If you call into the office, there might be eight employees there. I think some of these other banks that have one or two branches, if you call into the office, might only be two employees there, right? My point is that you can get to the person who knows 
about who's directing the foreclosures to agents much faster, right? Because you're not calling through all those tellers. You're just calling to the main office, and you're saying, hey, Sally, this is Pat Hyben. I'm calling over at Keller Williams. I'm calling to just find out what agent you're giving your foreclosed properties to to sell. She probably won't know, and then she'll, but the person that will know would probably be sitting right next to her. And then you talk to that person, can I meet you and show you what I can do differently from your current agent? And then you go and meet them. And I was able to get the three banks that were local small banks, one or two branches that only had like one foreclosure or three foreclosures a year. But I didn't care because I wanted them as a reference. The first listing we got was $28,000 on the Washington, D.C. line. I mean, it was on a street with 12 houses. Eight of them were boarded up. I mean, it was, it was bad, you know. They gave me the listing after they went to Habitat for Humanity and tried to give it to Habitat, and Habitat turned it down. Honest to God. And so, but I didn't care. See, all I wanted was to be able to put their name as a reference on an application for the bigger ones. And then once we got several smaller ones under the belt, it was much easier, you know, because the big ones will give you 50 listings a year. You know, the small ones only give you two or three anyway. You know, one bank gave us 12 and, and 18, actually. The first week with them, they gave us, and this was two years ago, they gave us 18 in one week. So that's how I did it. How did you know who to call? Did you have a master list or did you make your own? You can find people's names. If you join different groups, people share names and numbers. If you go to some of these REO conferences, you know, people will share names and numbers or you can meet people with names and numbers. But the problem is most of them are duds. For instance, if you go to any of these REO conferences, you can walk the exhibit hall and meet 12 people from different asset management companies. Now, those 12 people that you meet are not going to be the ones that are actually physically handing listings to sell to agents in your area. But you have a phone number and you have an email, so it's your job to kind of find out from them who handles your state and your area. And you just got to kind of have to, you know, follow up correctly with them and say, listen, I'm registered, I'm on the website, my application's accepted on the website. Can you please just refer me to the person who is in charge of handling assets in Maryland? And over time, you'll get the correct person's name. It's hard to always get the direct person's name. And number one, because they change. I mean, they change like every six months. I mean, it's a, it's a high turnover field. Very rarely do these asset managers stay with you for more than a year. But the company does, and you want you to register with the company you're in. The new person will use you. So that's how you do it. You just have to kind of, you know, you have to spend time and just ask the right questions. Who deals with your assets from Maryland? Who assigns your listings from Maryland? And you'll get there. You'll get there. We, got, we just got our 48th bank yesterday. Our goal was actually 50. I didn't think that we would make it, but now I'm sort of getting excited. We might make that goal. We're at 48 now. I was at 45 about three weeks ago. And since my book got released and I got off the speaking tour, I've had more time to start following up with other accounts that we haven't gotten. And since I got off speaking tour, I've gotten three new accounts. So 
that, that just goes to show you again what Chantel said originally, you reap what you sow. You know, for nine months, I was, I, you know, I really wasn't doing any follow-up because I was too busy selling books. And now that that's done, I've gotten three in the last month just because that's what I'm focusing on. Okay, so your first step was to fill out all these applications. Did you have a master list of banks or did you do the same process where you went to conventions and just built your own list? I bought a couple of lists from different seminars and things. Again, they, a lot of the stuff was wrong, but what it was was just names. You know, like, a matter of fact, if you go to my website, www.pathyben.com, pathyben.com, there is a, a box on the left-hand side. For some reason, people can't see this, but it's on the left-hand side. It says, you know, gives you an opportunity to buy the book, and then underneath that gives you another opportunity to download 50 usable forms that we use for on our team, like team forms or, or advertising things that I've done or that sort of thing. And one of those is a photograph of my REO board. It's a photograph that I took of my REO board that has a list of all the banks that we prospected, that I prospected that year. And I think it shows that I was at number 37. So for the first 37 banks that we got, that's the board that we used. And if you look at that photograph, I mean, it, it's not private information. You know, you could just take those that list of banks and just, you know, go to one of those or 10 of them or whatever and fill out applications on that bank. Once you do identify them, how do you contact them? You, you mentioned a phone call. Is it always a phone call? Do you also send an email? Do you send out a letter? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it used to be a phone call and then send them a, a note with a $5 Starbucks card in it. And uh, that was the protocol. That's what Chantel did, and that's what she taught me. And I probably sent out, I mean, there were weeks I sent out like 20 or 30 of them $5 Starbucks cards. And it actually worked. I mean, I got just was sending random the receptionists or whoever could I could get on the phone. I got into some accounts that way. Now, what happened was, you know, they they became more and more strict as everything did with the banks, and they started sending them back. Oh, we can't accept it. They considered it graft or whatever, you know, to to send a five dollar Starbucks card. And so that became unpopular pretty quick. Now I just send a thank you note great to talk to you and actually I say great to communicate with you because a lot of the communication I'm doing now is through email. Most of the asset managers or the people that work at these banks are under 50. They understand that email is much more efficient than phone calls. They prefer email. You call them and leave them a message, they won't call you back, but you send them an email, they'll, they'll zip you right back. So when I do my prospecting, I'll knock out 30, 40 emails or whatever in a couple-hour period, just bang, 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 and I'll get responses from probably half. Even if it's no, try me again. We just got one account I've been working on for two years, never spoken to her, only emailed her for two years. How's it going? You know, and she always responded, no, nothing yet. You know, our agents in Maryland are doing good. And then she she randomly – actually, I, I sent her an email probably two weeks ago. She sent me back, said, no, nothing yet. 
And then I get an email a couple days ago, Pat, please update your zip codes in the, in the system. I went in there, updated the zip codes, and the next day she sent me a listing. So, you know, that's how it works. That's how it works. Never spoken to her. Probably emailed her 12 times in two years. How often do you try to contact each of these asset managers? Once a month, maybe. You said you're sending email. What are you specifically saying in the email? Is it the same email each time? Are you saying something different? What's the topic in the email? It changes, but right now, here's what we're saying. Dear Bill, or whatever their name is, do you have any second opinion, BPOs, that you need done this week? That's it. These are people I don't have accounts with. Obviously, they already have an agent, right? Sometimes they need what's called a second opinion BPO, which is their agent has done a BPO for them, and they may or may not like it. But you get them on the right week, and it's like, you know, I don't know about this price. You know, it just doesn't seem right. And then they get an email from another agent in the same area that says, hey, you need any second opinion BPOs, which just means, well, I'm going to tell them what the house is worth. I'm not going to get anything out of it. It's just... Now, they might pay me 40, 50 bucks or something, but it's the second opinion. But I told you we just got someone on the accounts. They, you know, just last week, yes, actually I do, this was his answer. And we did the second opinion. Clearly, you know, worth more than 35000 And he's like, I'm going with you. And the agent actually had it on lockbox and was getting ready to put it in MLS, and we just listed it. And that was just all within the last week or so. We Not only did we get a new account, but we got a listing right away from that e- exact question. So, you know, when you ask that a question, what it does is it tells them that you know the lingo, you know what you're talking about, you know, you're not sending all this blah, 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 I'm great because da, 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 da. you're trying to service them and make their job easier, make it more efficient. Here's someone coming to me, so I don't got to go looking around to get a second opinion, coming to me, hey, Bill. I'm the guy in Maryland. I'm at your service. Can I do a second opinion BPO? I'm not saying can you give me a listing, but guess what? That second opinion BPO turned into a listing for us. So that's a nice, short, sweet email. Do you attach a resume or anything else to the email? Sometimes, yeah, or a list of zip codes that we service. But my signature line is a resume. Pat Hyben, billion-dollar agent specializing in the REOs, whatever you want to put there, you could two or three tags, taglines underneath your name. It can be sufficient as an REO agent, you know, just to show them you've got other accounts. Maryland's REO agent, or whatever you want to say, just show them that you, you specialize in REO. You said you're working with 48 different banks. Are you working only with private banks, or are you also working with the government entities such as HUD, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac? Yeah. Uh, Yes and yes. You know, we work with everybody. If you had to split out your REO business, what percentage is coming from the private banks versus the government entities? Half and half. Fannie and Freddie will probably give us half of our listings, but they're only two companies. You know, they'll load you up. You can get up to, I think some agents, I know one agent in our area had uh, one time had 200 and over 200 Fannie, Fannie Mae listings, just one guy. So I would say half of our listings are from the government. 
but there are only two or three outsourcers that give those half. 80-20 rule. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Let's talk about your current team. You don't do all this work by yourself. You've got 14 team members. What are these team members doing? What are their titles and their roles? Okay, so I have three agents that have been with me a long time. One of them has been with me 16 years that mainly just do their SOI business, their sphere of influence, houses that they own themselves or friends stuff like that. You know, they don't need or want uh, all the ad calls and stuff anymore, which is nice. It's a good relationship for me and a good relationship for them, right? We pay them fair. We don't bother them. We don't make them fill out forms. We don't make them attend meetings. But they'll put a sale a a month or or so on the board, right? So it's a very good relationship. So I got three of them. Then I got three other agents that take all the calls. You know, the ad calls, the sign calls, the websites, whatever. These are younger agents, only been in business a couple of years. They're street fighting agents, you know what I mean? They're they're on the street. They'll show a house for 25000 or whatever. They'll do a rental. They'll do, you know, whatever it takes, you know, whatever's required. Um, and they'll put some significant units up there, or at least I expect them to. So that's six people there. And then I have... Two full-time outside field reps who go out to houses, take pictures, put on lock boxes, do all the stuff out in the field. They're on the road all the time. I have um, a girl at the front desk who does all kinds of stuff. I have an office manager who kind of oversees all the, uh, the office. Then I have my partner, Mike Sloan, who is like the head guy in charge. We have a couple of various part-time people. We have a, a guy that does all of our books and accounting and all that stuff. He's he's virtual. You know, I have a, a couple of virtual people that we just use um, off and on. For instance, one of them uh, helps me prospect. So several times a week she will be on a speakerphone. Usually I'm at home. I just go into my office at home. I put on the speakerphone. I call her. She listens to me as I say things like, I'm sending this asset manager a email. I am calling this asset manager. And she takes notes on all of this. And she keeps me accountable. You know, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not dilly-dallying around buying Christmas gifts or whatever for my family during the two hours that she's listening. You know, I'm very productive during that two-hour slot. You know, I pay her 11 bucks an hour, and it's worth its weight in gold. And now what I've done is I've actually taken that and given it to my agents, and I said, whoever sells the most houses in the month, I will pay, her name is Nita, for Nita to listen to you and help you prospect for five hours So as, as a bonus. 
So you're prospecting two hours. Is that two hours a day, two hours a week? Lately, it's been a week. Some weeks it's been, you know, twice a week. It just depends on the week, you know. Is Nita more of an accountability partner? Is she dialing the phone numbers for you? No, no. She's just listening. I mean, there'll be sometimes three or four minutes where she won't even talk. She just listens to me talk or or listens to me. I just talk out loud. I'm sending this. Sometimes I'll carbon copy her on the email. She just keeps it all. She keeps everything in track. Like I have a list of companies I'm prospecting. So I'll say, okay, ABC Asset Management Company. When was the last time we contacted them? And she'll say, you emailed them on this date and you sent a thank you note on this date. And I said, okay, they're about due. And then I'll just send them an email. Do you need any second opinion BPOs done this week? That's it. You know what I mean? I mean, that's that's what she does. But see, here's the thing. If I didn't have Nita there, some other busy work would fill the time allotted. You know, it's like, why do people have a personal trainer for 10 or 20 years? You ever hear people, you know, keep their personal trainer, right? In real life, you should only need a personal trainer for like a month, right? And they're going to tell you what weights to lift, <laughs> what exercises to do, and then you should be smart enough to memorize that and then be able to go to the gym and save yourself a ton of money and not have to pay a personal trainer. I had a personal trainer for eight years, right? So you would say, well, why in the heck did you pay some for eight years? I didn't pay her because I forgot how to do a curl or to go to the bench. You know, I didn't pay her for that. I paid her because she made me set the alarm to meet her, right? She made me get to the gym, and she made me work out, right? And in reality, I might have hit snooze. I might have decided that some client took priority, or I might have read the paper for a half hour longer than I normally would. You know what I mean? So, so that's why I paid for the personal trainer. That's why I pay for Nita. So she's accountability for you. Absolutely. Are all the people on your team licensed? Yes. Do you have a preference? Do you prefer to hire experienced or new agents? Right now, today, I prefer new or partially new. A year, two years. I want somebody who is not afraid. You know, it's not going to be like, eh, I don't want it. It's not spoiled. You know what I mean? There's a ton of spoiled agents out there, you know. And when you're doing REOs, you can't be spoiled, right? When you're working with investors, you can't be spoiled. You know, you just have to get out there and get it. You know what I mean? If they want to look at this house or they want to, you know, whatever. You know, I mean, we and we have some investors we, that we have gotten that because other agents wouldn't jump to it and didn't weren't hungry enough to buy multiple houses. And last week, we had one guy put offers on six houses. He He won't get all six. He might get one or two, but the point is he's going to be buying all year round. we got three or four of those type of guys. I don't think an average agent could handle that. I don't want to put an offer in for a $65,000 house or I don't want to whatever. It takes a certain breed, I think, to want to just get out there and, and be fire, 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 rather than ready, aim, ready, aim, ready. Aim. You know what I mean? To be a buyer agent with REOs, you got to be – you got to be like fire, 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 <laughs> you know, 
and, and then aim later. Because if you fire, 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 I guess it's kind of like a, a machine gun approach versus a rifle, you're going to hit. You know, you're going to hit your target. You're going to get sales, and you just have to do that. So that's why I prefer new agents because they're more like a an AK-47 than they are a higher-focused rifle, if that makes sense. Let's go back for a minute and talk about just a few years back when you were closing the 500 transactions a year. You mentioned earlier you were in a different market. It was more of a normal, traditional market. You were buying your business through heavy advertising. In order to close 500 transactions, how many people did you have running around? At our peak, we had 54. What were those 54 people doing? I had 17 buyer agents. I had three listing agents, and we, we had it broken up. I mean, all they did is list. I mean, each of my listing agents sold over 100 houses a year, or listed over 100 houses a year, and most of them all sold. And the rest were just staff. I had a marketing team of four. I had four people in one room, and we were doing 500 postcards a day. We were doing 25 television commercials would come out every single day. I mean, there was just an incredible amount of care that, that went into everything, and it was fast. I mean, we, we'd get a call on a Wednesday, have to go out that same day or the next day, list it that day, and put it on the market that Friday, and in the meantime, make incredible glossy brochures and, and get ads run and everything. It takes a lot of people to do that with that sort of speed. I also had a mortgage company, I had a title company. That was a lot of fun. I mean, we had a lot of people. And, and it kind of goes back to what you said about, you know, the difference in net. Here's the big difference. See, when the market changed, right, I think our overhead was over $200,000 a month, right, 250000 something like that, right? You can do that to, you know, 70. If we made 25%, 75% of $5 million is obviously $3.5 million. So, Three and a half million is is almost three hundred thousand, right? So we were spending over three hundred thousand dollars a month. Now, the big difference between okay, now we have a small team with low overhead, but the net is the same. Before we had a big team with high overhead and the net the same. The big difference is the monkey, right? There's a monkey, a three hundred thousand dollar month monkey that that if if something shifts, right, and you go from 30 settlements or 40 settlements a month to 20, you lose, right? And that nobody likes that feeling. You know what I mean? So you lose money. I don't have that monkey now. And although we, we make a lot less, there's a certain risk that doesn't exist. If I had a month next month with no settlements, it wouldn't be a big deal at all. And before, I mean, we went from our units dropped one year by 35%, they dropped the next year by 35%, and the next year by 30%. I fired 22 people in one year. You know, and that was very stressful. You know, I probably lost five years of my life in that one year just downsizing. So that's the big difference. The big difference now is I don't have that um, huge risk. I'm not going to lose anything. You know, I'm not going to lose it all. It's like being in a gambling at a craps table or whatever. It's the same thing as taking all your money off the table and, and cashing out and going back to your room and watching TV. It's a smart thing to do when you're winning. The downsizing 
you mentioned it had to be stressful, but the decision still had to be made. How did you implement the downsizing? First of all, you saw your numbers shrinking. You knew you had to downsize, but how did you choose who you're going to let go when? Did you try to just go across all the departments and pull out 10% of the people at a time? How did you go through that process? It was a consensus process. There was a couple of people in that company that I consider my board of directors. We'd go out to lunch. We'd have a consensus. I'd say, you know, here's the deal. We need to start letting people go. Who do you think's first to go? And it would come out. It'd be easy. You know, it was easy. Um, Sally, this person can do more and this person is not needed. It flushes itself out. It's, it was never a quandary. It was never a quandary. This person's next. I remember firing five people one day, one Friday, and then like next month, the same first Friday of the month, fired five more people. And we didn't think at the time of, I would have fired all 10 if if I had thought at that time that the next month was going to be worse. But, you know, the thought, you always have hope. So the thought at the time was, oh, we should last, we'll be fine just letting off five. And then we let off five. And then the next thing you know, the numbers came in even worse. So you're like, oh, crap, we got to let off another five. That was that. But you had the strength to make those changes rather than just hope and watch everything go down the toilet and lose more and more money each month. Yeah. I've seen some people now looking back, right? I mean, it's been a while. There's been people in our market that now are out of business. I mean, now that that lost a lot because they were so concerned about what people thought of them. I didn't want to be seen as letting off five people. Like that was a bad thing. Warren Buffett autobiographies, The Snowball. If you read that book, his partner says, if I look at a company that's never laid off somebody, I get worried. But the companies that I look at that have a long history of laying off people, I like those companies because they're apt to be much more profitable because they ebb and flow. You know what I mean? They know how to make the numbers work. And these, some of these companies that never lay off anybody, then they go out of business. You know, all of a sudden, boom, they get hit, and then and they're like, oh, you know what I mean? They don't, they don't have that, uh, that edge to them. Am I making any sense? I, I completely botched the guy's quote. Charlie Munger is his name. But uh, you got the point. In, in American business, it's good business to lay off people and rehire than it is to hold on. So I've never worried about what people think of me. You know, let go of 22 people in a, in a year. And, you know, I look back on it now and I'm like, I'm, you know, we're still here, you know, and we're still having fun, doing a lot of things. And that was a smart thing to do. Where other people that I know, you know, wanted to look good, kept their whole staff, didn't want anybody to know that their numbers were completely negative and um, they're in business. So number one is survival. Yeah. Doesn't matter what's going on. All that matters is what you're actually netting, right? And what you're saving and what you're investing in. Net, save, invest. That's what it's all about. And the reality is nobody else really ever knows that but you. So you don't worry about what other people think. You know what you're netting, you know what you're saving, and you know what you're investing. 
and the rest of the world doesn't, and they probably never will. So that's all you should worry about. You don't worry about what people may think. And you'll just end up losing money, you know? And then you'll never save, and then you'll never invest. Pat, I'd like to change the conversation and talk about your book now. You wrote a book called The Six Steps to Seven Figures, A Real Estate Professional's Guide to Building Wealth and Creating Your Own Destiny by Pat Hyben. Why did you write this book? I told you about the over time I've had 65 mentors. I went to a funeral of a guy I knew pretty well that was a high school football coach. And all of his eulogies were from mentees, people that he had mentored. And they all said really profound things about the coach. I was driving away from that funeral, and I had this huge realization that I had 65 mentors, but I didn't have any mentees. And I talk about this book. It was I, I visualized, like, remember the barrel of monkeys, the toy? plastic monkeys, where you kind of hook them to each other. I had this vision of 65 monkeys holding me up, pulling me up, but I was not reaching down and pulling up any other monkeys. And I thought, man, I need to be more balanced. I need to have 65 mentees, right? I'm not in a place of equilibrium with the universe. You know, this is deep, but this is kind of how I was feeling after this very depressing situation. I've always wanted to write a book, and I had been kind of working on it before then, but really wasn't motivated to, like, uh, get it done, get it out. You know what I mean? It was like, man, I don't know. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But I, after that, I was like, that's it. You know, I'm done. I'm getting this book, zipping it up, and getting it published. My point is I found that the fastest, most efficient way for me to be more balanced and have more mentees was to give back all the information that over the past 25 years that I've gleaned from people like Chantel Ray, Floyd Wickman, everybody that I've met that has helped me over the past 25 years give back in a book to the new generation of real estate agents that's coming up. And so that's what motivated me to get it out, get it done, and uh, this is the product, and thank goodness. And so barely 70 days, we have sold over 14,000. We were back-ordered. Last week, we were back-ordered. People were like trying to get it on Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and they had to get this back-order message because there was no books left. They finally got uh, 5,000 more printed, and those are all in the streamline now. They're all getting fulfilled this week. And they might have to make more. So 19,000 books in like 70 days, that's a lot of real. Did you ever think there'd be 19,000 realtors reading the book? That's a heck load of realtors. You know what I mean? I mean, that's, I'm sure, I don't know what the statistics are, but I'm sure the, there's millions of realtors, but it's nice. It's nice that, I, that I'm able to give back my private information, my candid no holds barred. I did not leave anything out. I didn't hide anything. You know what I mean? I did not worry once about, oh my God, you know, am I giving away any secrets? Because at this point, 25 years, you know what I mean? I, I'm flattered. If you copy something from me, I'm flattered. Matter of fact, I, 
I have in there a couple of uh, postcards that I did with my kids when I was younger. And I've gotten two postcards mailed to me. I got one yesterday from a Century 21 agent who sent it to me and said, Pat, look, uh, I you know, hope you don't mind, I copied you. And he had his three kids on this postcard exactly like I had my kids on 10 years ago. And I was flattered by that. I was like, that's awesome. You know what I mean? I've had people send me pictures of their goal boards. I've had people send their goals to me. I've probably had 15 people ask for me to be their mentor. So people are reading it and actually taking the advice. Because if there's a pet peeve of mine, it's people ask for advice all the time, but they don't do what you tell them to do. And so it's refreshing to get these things in the mail, these notes in the mail, these email pictures of things, of people doing certain things. I think it's really cool. It's been a fun ride. Pat, do us a favor and list out the six steps to seven figures. There is eight chapters. There's introduction and conclusion, which are significant because the conclusion is, you know, live an awesome life. And it talks about how I've balanced life and that sort of thing. But the six steps are, step one is affirm. And by affirm, I mean goal set. Set a goal and then convince yourself that you are meant to achieve that goal. I think if you, if you sat down and analyzed why so many people set goals and then never make them, right? As a matter of fact, most people set a goal and then quit like three weeks later. I mean, probably 99% of people set goals, quit them. They don't want to say, they want to call it quit, but they just kind of forget about it, right? It's because deep down they believe that they're not worthy, that they weren't supposed to. They might say, I want to be a millionaire, but they don't have that passion, the, the deep belief that they're supposed to be millionaires, right? That no one can convince them otherwise that they're supposed to be millionaires. And the reason they don't have that belief is because for the first 18 years of their life, they've received so many more negative affirmations than they have positive. Take a two-year-old child. Have you ever heard the statistics that a two-year-old boy hears 40 negative affirmations for every one positive? Can you see that? Like imagine a two-year-old boy. Hey, Johnny, stop. Don't. Come here. No. You know, constantly throughout the day, 40 to 1. Imagine if you had to reverse that, Mike. Imagine if you took a four-year-old boy and you had to say five positive things to him for every one no or stop or don't, right? You couldn't. I mean, it'd be so hard to be like, Johnny, good job sticking your finger in that light socket, you know? And over time, that wears on us, that creates this belief that I'm not meant to be rich. I'm not meant to sell 100 houses. I'm not meant to sell 500 houses. I'm not meant to, you know, I'm just average. And so we have to create affirmation that, yes, we are meant we, we are supposed to be this, right? And the only way you could do that is to program your subconscious mind by writing down the goal, putting in the affirmation. For instance, one of mine was, I am a best-selling author, right? I mean, who am I to say I'm going to have a bestseller, right? So I'm a best-selling author, and I'm a best-selling author. I did that for a year, right? I put it on my phone, and then I listened to it on my phone, Every day on the way to work, you know, just a couple of minutes. I just played the recording every single day. When I started, I played a cassette tape, and then I played, uh, made it a CD, and now I do it on my iPhone. So that's step one, affirm. 
Okay. Step two is track. Tracking is simple. I'll ask you this question, Mike. Why does Weight Watchers work so well? Is it true that, like, if you're on Weight Watchers, I don't know if you've ever been on Weight Watchers, but if you've ever known someone on Weight Watchers, that if you eat two peanut M&Ms, that you have to write it down, the number of points that two peanut M&Ms equals. Yes, that's how it works. So the only reason Weight Watchers works is tracking because it forces you to track how many calories you're ingesting versus burning, basically, right? And by writing it down, you track, and that's why it works. So it's that simple that tracking equals success, not tracking equals failure. And every uh, and I've met over 25 years, I've met over 1,000 top agents. Every top agent I meet tracks like crazy. The ones that struggle don't track anything. So I track everything. And I show you examples. I talk about tracking. Um, people are starting to send me all kinds of cool pictures of what they're tracking. As realtors, you can get so creative in tracking. And I told you about the whiteboard. I, I, I think I told you about this. But the, I took like the 50 REO companies. Oh, yeah, I told you about it. I took a picture of it and I put it on the padhyben.com that anybody can download. I just wrote down the 35 or 50 companies that I wanted to get accounts with, and I tracked them. I put a check mark if I called them. If we got a BPO from them, I put a little star. And then when I got the account, I put a big check on them. Got. So that's two. Step three, mentor. I've touched on this a little already. I told you about uh, you know the 65 mentors. I've also developed mentees. I actually own several other companies with mentees of mine. One of the benefits of having a mentee is that you share goals. So if you and I are in a mentor-mentee relationship, Mike, and one of your goals was to open up or expand mastermind agent, and we're sharing goals, who is one of the first people that are going to know about this big aspiration of yours? My mentor. Right. I've had recently two mentees who have shared their goals with me that what they really want to do is break out on their own and start their own company. And so I've been in a position where I've helped fund them, and I own 10% of one company called Greatest Efficiency Automation Company. I actually have a bunch appointment today to, to meet with them to go over the, the third quarter profit loss. And I own 10% of that company. And then I own 20% of a payroll company called Infinity HR. That's Infinity with an I, infinityhr.com. And we do payroll processing. And, and we have about 10,000 employees that we process payroll for every two weeks. Actually, we do a ton of real estate agents. I think we have over 20 uh, real estate agent teams. And we have several different real estate offices, just their accounting people or their receptionists, four or five employees. We specialize in a small business four, 10, 20 employees, whatever. But altogether, we have over 10,000 now that we process every two weeks. A very customer service, small company. So I think there's 15 people that work there. make a long story short, I own 20% of that because I funded the money for a mentee of mine to start it. And so there's multiple benefits to having uh, both mentees and mentors. 
so that's the whole chapter there, and I talk about all those experiences in detail in chapter three, and then chapter four is act, work. You know, and this goes back to what Chantel told me. You reap what you sow 100% of the time. When I wanted to sell this book, Mike, I had this brilliant idea. Of course, never being in the, in the book world, I had an idea. Oh, man, I, I know how to. A guy told me, hey, Pat, you need to sell 9,000 books that hit the bestseller list. I said, well, I'm not going to do this unless I do it right, right? I'm not going to write a book unless it's good. I don't want to just write this piece of junk that this you know, it's a black and white cover with, with my name on it that nobody reads. You ever get those books from people that self-publish a book and hand it to you and they haven't sold any? The only ones that are out there that are giving them for free? I didn't want that. I wanted to be a real book. I had a ghostwriter help me write it, professionally written, everything real. So what I did is I talked to Gary Keller, co-founder of Keller Williams, who's had three bestsellers, right? Again, a mentor, right? Someone who's been succeeded specifically at something, bestsellers. I said, Gary, I got this great idea. I'm going to make all these friends on Facebook. I have like 8,000 friends now, by the way. I'm going to get all these friends on Facebook, and then I'm going to talk about my book constantly, and I'm going to you know, push it through Twitter and Facebook and social media, and I'm going to sell 9,000 copies. He said to me, Pat, that will never, ever, ever, ever work. He nipped that right in the bud. He said, the only way you're going to sell 9,000 copies is if you go from office to office, agent to agent, office manager to office manager, and speak about your book. He says, you have to work. Same thing as act, right? You can't, you can't just sell 9,000 books by internet. Right? It's just not going to happen, and uh, you have to get in front of people. Same thing with the REOs. I wasn't just going to get accounts. I had to pick up the phone and call. You know, That was the act part. So I hung up the phone with Gary, and I took his advice. And I, I, yesterday I spoke in my 54th city this year. So I've spoken on my book topic in 54 cities. I spoke in 49 cities before it was released, 49 different cities, Agent to agent, office to office, spoke on it, sold 50, 100 at a time. Yesterday I sold 66 books. No, actually I sold 166. I'm sorry. They bought 100 before I got there. So 166 books. That's how I did it. So that is relative to work. You've got to work. You, you can't just you know, kick back in this. No one wins the lottery. Step five is build. Build. I had a mentor, Dr. Fred Gross, who I talked in detail about in the book, who taught me an, an invaluable lesson. And then he says, set your goal and then build from a success up rather from the ground up. And I tell about three different stories in my book about this. And, and so I'll ask you this, Mike. What is easier to list a house in a neighborhood where you have already sold a house or to list a house in a neighborhood where you've never sold a house before? The first one. Right. And that is what is called building on a success up rather than the ground up. You take a success and you build on that. It's just so much easier. And so every goal that I set, I set the goal first, but then I search for success that I've had. I said, okay, 
you know, I've sold three houses in the neighborhood. Let me become the neighborhood expert. Don't go to some random neighborhood that you never sold a house in before. It's just silly. So whether my goal was getting, you know, and the same thing with the REO business, you know, go to a local bank and then get that success and then build from that success and that success. And, and I got in a luxury home business. I only sold in 2006, I only sold one house over a million dollars in 12 years prior. And the next year we sold 10. And I did that methodically through chapter five, build. And I explained how I did it in the chapter. That's what build's about. And then the last one is invest. And invest, I say, are you a millionaire or are you a billionaire? And this is a frustration of mine because I think there's tons of agents out there that are billionaires. You know what a billionaire is? Billionaire is a fake millionaire. Somebody has a $10,000 Rolex watch but doesn't have 10 grand in the bank. They're a billionaire. You know, beautifully manicured yard, incredible furniture, incredible interior of their house, but they're two payments behind. That's a billionaire, and I think the real estate industry is rampant with them. You know, it starts with a car. I understand everybody says, you know, you've got to get a nice car because people want to see that you're successful when you pull up. And that's true. I agree with that. If you pull up in a Mercedes, people will judge you as successful. At least you can get a used one and get a deal on one. But it starts with that and it just grows from there, right? What I tell people in the book is that, you know, what I've done is set up a savings plan and I tell you how I did that. And then you do what Monopoly taught us. I mean, investing in real estate is pretty simple. If you follow Monopoly, you start buying little greenhouses. I've bought over 50 houses, right? I've sold a bunch. I've kept a bunch. I've flipped. I've rented. I've done everything. And then you take the proceeds from little greenhouses and you turn them into what? Right, big red hotels. Big red hotels. So I've got shopping center. I saw a picture in the book of, of me and my two other partners in front of our shopping center. I've got some interest in warehouse, office buildings, apartment buildings, different things I've bought that has provided mailbox money. And I talk about mailbox money. I met, a, I met another mentor of mine and good friend, and now we invest together, Tim Road who when I met him had 21 paychecks. I was like, what do you make? And he's like, he's like, I got 21 paychecks every month. I said, 21, what the, what are you talking about, right? And this was like 15 years ago. I'm like, what, 21 paychecks? What are you talking about? You get 21 commissions? He's like, no, I'm out of real estate. He's a former agent. He was like the top agent with Century 21. Then he got out and became an investor. He's like, no, I got a you know Dollar General store, and I got a Enterprise rent a car, and I got you know these buildings that I rent to these companies, and they pay me X amount a month to rent my buildings, and they're mailbox money. These are paychecks that I get every month, and I don't got to do anything for them. And I was like, man, I want to be like you. So he taught me how to how to do that, and I've you know done that. That's what the last chapter, Invest, is about. And, and actually, and then the conclusion comes in, and that's about doing things like uh, two years ago, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, and I just got back from a three-week vacation with my family. No cell phones, no iPads, no laptop. You know, I talk about how to build a life, how to work to live rather than live to work how to get the most life out of life, basically. And I talk about that in there, kind of end the book with that. That is the whole baby there.
Let's go back for a minute and talk about the goal setting and the affirmation, since that's where people have to start. How should someone set a goal? What's the best way to set a goal? What is the, the wrong way to set a goal? Is there any right or wrong way? Yeah, I think so. I think the more specific you are, the better. I think it should be on the lofty side. I don't think you should necessarily set goals that you think that you can make no matter what. I think they, I'd, I'd, I'd rather you shoot for the moon and you know hit the stars than not shoot for the moon. You know what I mean? So you don't get it this year, get it the next year. You can always adjust it. If you want to sell 50 homes, set a goal for 70, right? You're only going to do as much as that goal. You're never going to do more than that goal unless you set a goal that's more than is realistic. But it still should be specific. It should be written down. It should be public. The more people that know about it, we go back to the diet thing, right? If you go on a diet and you tell 10 people you're on a diet, it's going to be embarrassing for you to tell 10 people that you're not on a diet anymore. But if you don't tell anyone, it's going to be easy for you to quit. So by making it public and letting people know, it's harder to quit. So I would make it public, written, and specific. And that's how I set all my goals. And then turn them into the affirmative as if they already exist. Did you see the DVD or book called The Secret? You know, The Secret was great. It was very entertaining. The, the challenge with The Secret is this. If you set a goal to be a millionaire and you sit in your family room of your house, Indian style, on the floor, and you say over and over again, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, for a year, they're going to come foreclose on your house. Jim Rohn has a statement that says, affirmation without discipline is delusion. I'll repeat that. Affirmation, right, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, Without discipline, is delusion. So you can say I'm a millionaire to get your mind to believe that you're supposed to be, which I agree with, but then you have to say, you know, I prospect to pass clients two hours a day, or I hand out 10 business cards a day, or I save $50 a day. Whatever it is, you can have several. You have to have action-oriented goals that correspond with the big you have to do something right you have to act chapter four that's how I set goals you set a big one but then you have to set what specifically do you need to do to get to that goal and those specific steps to achieving your goal those become your affirmations yeah all of them you can have a hundred affirmations how do you design a proper affirmation it sounds like it's a short sentence it's in the affirmative, it's action-oriented, and it's as though you've already accomplished it. Is that correct? Correct. Pat, what drives you? Why are you successful? I think what drives me is variety. If I follow along paths of people that I've gone to high school with and people that I've gone to college with and, and looked at the ones that have been successful and the ones that have not been so successful, the ones that have not been so successful, in my experience, the ones that have jumped around from different job to different job to different job, right? Different, different career paths. Now, I have no problem with jumping around because I'm the same way. You know, I'm always doing different things. But the one thing that I've done is I've always stayed, for the most part, in real estate. 
most of my focus is real estate related. So I might jump around, but I'll jump around from luxury homes to REO homes to selling books. Every, everything's related to real estate, right? In some way, it ties back to real estate. I'm not going from real estate to getting a law degree and becoming a lawyer, unless I was going to be real estate law. So the path is generally in the same direction, just different things within that path. And I think what motivates me is being in a world where I can have so many choices and so many things to do, but stay in that path so that I'm constantly building on a success up rather from the ground up. And that ensures your chances of success by staying in that same path. Pat, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would tell them to find the rookie of the year in their office and take them out to lunch and find out exactly what that rookie of the year did last year to become the rookie of the year. And their goal is to be the rookie of the year this year. Pat, I've come to the end of my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't mentioned yet? No, I think we've covered it all, Mike. A lot of people might want to know where they get the book. They can get the book at pathybin.com. You can also get our free 50-plus downloads absolutely free on that same website. If you want to take a taste of the book but don't want to buy it yet, you can download Chapter 1 for free on the same website as pathybin.com. And if you go now to barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com, so many of the books have sold that they've taken 32% off the price now. I, I, I don't know how that works, but the, the more they sell, the cheaper it gets. It's just a volume thing for them. So you could get it for like 10 or $11 through that avenue there, and even like 8 bucks for a download version on your iPad or your Kindle or your uh, Nook, and it's a no-brainer. So, and, and people have told me it's a quick read. They can read it in an airplane flight from from D.C. to Florida or a two-hour flight, you can read the whole book and get tons of information. So I hope you read it. I hope you can be friends with me on Facebook. Go to facebook.com backslash Patrick Hyben. I have 8,000 friends. So Pat Hyben is filled up at five and taking more friends on Patrick. Befriend me on Patrick, and I read it every day several times, so you can reach out and tell me how you're doing Send me pictures of what you're doing, how you're implementing the book. I'd love to help mentor you through the success process. Well, Pat, you've had an amazing career. Very few agents can claim selling over $1 billion in residential real estate. You could have retired, lived on a tropical beach, and sipped Mai Tais all day. Instead, you're giving back with your new book, Six Steps to Seven Figures. You are honoring the 65 mentors who pulled you up by helping thousands of mentees with your new book. You are an inspiration to all aspiring agents. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks.
If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.